Geraldine Jameson on Manx Radio. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's programme. My distinguished guest today is Professor Andrew Motion. He read English at University College Oxford, taught English at the University of Hull, where he met Philip Larkin, Professor of Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia, is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, Chairman of the Arts Council of England's Literature Panel, and became Poet Laureate in 1999. Well, a very warm welcome indeed, both to the programme and to Manx Radio, Andrew. It's a great pleasure to be here, thank you. I presume that I may assume that I can call you Andrew. I mean, after all, you are the Poet Laureate. I'm not quite sure whether I should be down on bended knees or not. You no, know. Not, no bended knees. You can certainly call me Andrew. Though whether people call Tennyson Alfred, I think, is an interesting question. <laughs> well, now, this is your second visit to the Isle of Man on both occasions to the Erin Arts Centre in Port Erin, of which, actually, you are a patron. Um, do intimate, knowledgeable small audiences then appeal to you? Very much. I mean, I spend quite a lot of time talking to larger groups of uh, either school children or, as it were, people, um, ordinary uh, festival audiences and so on and so forth. So to come to somewhere like this is um, is very attractive. And I, you're right, I have been here once before. Um, and I think the reason that I'm a patron of the, uh, of the Arts Centre has probably got more to do with the fact that I wrote a limerick about John Bethel in the um, guest book in my in the green room than anything else. <laughs> I think that should be printed actually. You know, on the, in the, in the foyer on on the way in for for all all to read. Um, now, an admired poet, of course, Andrew, indeed champion of poetry, critic, lecturer, and biographer. But surprisingly, yours was not a literary background at all. Down in the leafy home counties of England, in fact. All that could be found, really, in your house, your parents' house, obviously, were some Iris Murdoch novels, perhaps from your mother's book club, and not much else. No, it's true, there wasn't very much else. My, um, my mother's family... <clears throat> it's interesting, of course, isn't it, how mother's families tend to get sidelined in these kind of accounts of, uh, of genealogies. My mother's family... My mother's maiden name was Bakewell, and she came from the... Well, from Derbyshire, where Bakewell village, and in fact is remotely related to... Um, the person that we used to come across at school and refer to as the inventor of the fat sheep. So it is a... Um, she's, her family is rather interestingly uh, sort of wired into, if that's quite the word for it, um, the kind of agricultural life of, of things. Um, but her family were professional people, um, lawyers, judges, that kind of uh, business. Her father, my maternal grandfather, whom I never met, was a GP... Um, my father's family seems, as far as we can work it out, seems to have come over from Norway at some point. The name Motion is an adaptation of um, a Norwegian, small Norwegian village name, Mersion, which has a kind of line through one of the O's and so on. And they came over for uh, a bit of recreation in Scotland in way, way, way back and settled in St Andrews. And then uh, came, back, came down to the south of England um, in the form of my great-grandfather, who was also called Andrew, um, who was a, a, a brewer, became a brewer. They were bakers up in St. Andrews, and he became a, a brewer down in England. You can sort of see the link there, I think. Um, my grandfather, my father's father, was a, a brewer and then <clears throat> for the first part of his life and then became a farmer. My 
father, and before he retired, was a brewer all his working life. My brother is now a grain merchant, so there's an interest in alcohol and uh, agriculture, interestingly combined there. And the, sort, I mean, and the reason I'm saying all this is that it allows you to see that the kind of home that, that it was. And it, you're right to say that it was leafy in the sense that there were trees with leaves on it, but it wasn't suburban. It was, and in those days, and this is, I'm talking about the late 60s, early 70s here, it was still possible to find outbreaks of real countryside, really quite close to London in a way that you simply can't now. Um, so it was a house in a village where my grandfather and great-grandfather had lived before my father, in which my father now lives and my brother lives. So it's a real sort of place associated with the family. Um, and you're right to say that there weren't very many books, but there were a large number of creatures of one kind or another, from goldfish up to horses. Um, and I think, and I don't mean this in any sort of disrespectful or slighting way at all, in fact rather the opposite, that it wasn't... It wasn't an intellectual household, but it was a place which valued, as I was saying in the reading I gave here last night, um, it was a place which valued naming and getting a sort of true relationship to the environment in one way or another, either by knowing the names of things. My father in particular does know the names of all the trees and plants and so on. Or by doing, by living a life which was in one way or another in step with country matters. Um, when I contemplate it now, it seems an eternity ago, of course, even though I'm only 50. Um, and it probably would be quite difficult to pursue that sort of childhood or to discover that sort of childhood in that particular place now. Um, but it was certainly possible that back then... In particular, bird spotting. Your father and you were, were great on bird spotting. Your mother had a couple of um, ponies, which you and your brother rode. And there was a wonderful time, one of your earlier poems, when the local blacksmith, Stroke Farrier, would come along to see to serenade. It was kind of a cross between um, a, a miniature horse and a mule. So she wasn't a terribly pretty animal, but, but had to be uh, shooed, of course. And that stood out in your mind, and you wrote the most wonderful poem around it. One of your earlier ones, I think. It is, yes, it's, it's, it is an earlier poem, this. I mean, what happened with my poor mother eventually was that I think when I was 16, um, she had a riding accident and fell off this creature and hit herself very hard on the head and spent <clears throat> the next three years of her life totally unconscious. I mean, completely, profoundly unconscious. Um, so my brother and father and I would spend our holidays and days away from school and so on, sitting at her bedside trying to kind of coax her back to um, ordinary life without very much success. But she did gradually resurface t to a certain level. She never left hospital, but she did recover her power of speech. Her brain had been very badly damaged in the accident and large pieces of it were simply missing. So talking to her was difficult. There were large parts of her memory that, that were simply absent. Um, I mean, doctors kept saying to us then, as I dare say they still might now, that the brain is a very mysterious place. And of course, they know more about the brain now than they did 30-odd um, years ago. But I think they, they would still agree that there are aspects of its functioning that they simply don't know about. And um, back then, they were certainly happy to admit that there were large, things, large parts of its operation that they were just ignorant about. Um, so that was the... Um, that was the second part, the last part of my childhood, or to put it slightly differently and more uh, severely, I, w I would say in fact that my childhood ended on the day that she did have her accident because all kinds of adult or semi-adult responsibilities came to me as it, as it happened. And even though she lived on for another 10 years eventually, 
um, three of those first three unconscious years and then seven years of a sort of floating limbo life between death and life. Um, the, the, those ten years were not uh, years in which it was possible to go on living as I'd done in the, early, in the earlier part with the sort of careless rapture of, of, of youth. And I think it's probably true to say that the overlap um, in terms of the, the timelines of, of all this between her accident and my writing poems is very suggestive. I, it's impossible for me to say whether I would have written poems had she not had the accident, but it, the accident certainly gave me a feeling that I wanted to preserve her, um, and writing poems about her was one way of doing that. See, I wondered perhaps if you'd had an inspirational English teacher at school. I was lucky, I did. I, I don't write poetry, unfortunately, but I do think it has stood me in good stead it really, and possibly in, in, in the role that one has now. And I wondered if it was the same case for you, if, if that was the encouragement, the spur, apart from your mother's illness, you know, and, and finding that you must express yourself some other way, if that was at the back of it all, Andrew. Well, that's very, that's absolutely spot on. I mean, I, I did have an inspirational English teacher whom I had first had dealings with at more or less exactly the same time as all this other stuff was going on. Um, getting to rather sort of late adolescence. I mean, our lives had been incredibly sheltered. We were so innocent and ignorant innocent um, until our um, early teens. So uh, to begin to lose that sort of innocence, to have the accident happen, um, and to come into the kind of orbit of this English teacher, these are all very difficult to untangle, these things, I, I think. And um, this man, whose name is Peter Way, gave us poems to read in a way which... Um, allowed me to see self-evidently for the first time, and I think rather extraordinarily in any, in any case, allowed me to see that poems need not be weird additions to life, but could actually be fundamental to the experience of being alive. And they were about, not always, but they were often about the big serious things which make up our lives, um, falling in love, well, you know, birth, death, the whole business. Um, his own taste in poems was towards that uh, sort of melancholy uh, rather straight-faced kind of writing. And it was with him that I first read, well, I first read poems entirely, but his taste was very good, and it was with him that I first read Hardy, Edward Thomas, Wordsworth, Keats, Milton, um, uh, Larkin, because he was interested in contemporary writing as well. In fact, when I left school, he rather sweetly gave me um, a book of poems as a leaving present, which was a book of poems by Tom Gunn, who of course died the other the other day. So he was he was absolutely bang up to date, as well as being uh, profoundly invested in the mighty dead. And I can't say how much I owe him an enormous amount. Well, luckily, then you you mentioned uh, Philip Larkin. You taught English, as I said at the top of the program, at the University of Hull in the late. 70s, early 80s, and that's where you actually met the poet Philip Larkin. It wasn't until 1993 that you wrote his biography entitled A Writer's Life, which actually won the Whitbread uh, Biography Award, very prestigious indeed. Um, he obviously had great influence then, and it was a marvellous friendship. Was it terrific camaraderie? Yes, there was. I mean, it's a slightly odd thing to say this, because, of course, Larkin's reputation when he was alive was um, for being very withdrawn, very severe on people he didn't like, absolutely no-nonsense kind of character, wouldn't suffer fools gladly and wouldn't suffer many people gladly. Um, the person who adapted the famous John Donne uh, line to go, 
Every man is an island. I mean, that was rather Larkin's, perhaps an appropriate thing to say on the Isle of Man. Every man is an island was, uh, was Larkin's view. But we did become friends. I was very wary of him when I first went to Hull, which I think was in 1976, because this reputation preceded him. Um, and in fact, to try and hook this in with what we were saying a minute ago about family matters, um, the very first time I met him, he did something rather... Uh, <laughs> Extraordinary, which was we met in the university bar. This was about two months after I'd got to Hull, so I was taking it pretty slowly. Um, and we ordered a pint of beer each, and Phillips went down the wrong way. Um, so was not only within seconds of meeting did I find myself uh, sort of talking to him in a more in a freer way than I could ever have imagined, I also found myself whacking him on the back to try and get, get it to go down the right way. Um, and as his face cleared after this, he'd said... You'd think I'd know how to drink a pint of beer by now. And then he, I said, well, it's all right, because you know I know about beer, because my dad was a brewer. And his face absolutely lit up. Um, and I think probably what he was thinking was, here is somebody who comes from stock that has produced things that people really need, alcohol, rather than uh, from anything more sort of arty, um, which we could take or leave. <laughs> so we were off then. Um, and he liked the fact that I'd been to Oxford, and because he was a bit snobby about that, to be perfectly honest. Um, and we made each other laugh. Um, and yes, when he'd, after he'd died, I, I wrote his biography. A couple of years before he died, he came to have lunch with me one day, but I'd left Hull by this time and was back in Oxford again teaching, and he, he invited himself to lunch, and we, he said that he wanted to make me one of his literary trustees. Sorry, literary executives, I should be precise about this. Um, and I said, well, I'm very happy to do this, but you know, don't die because he was only 62 or so when he, we, we had this conversation. Um, and he said, no, I have no intentions of doing that. Um, but of course, he did die quite soon afterwards. And the idea then became that, as organized by his relict moniker, Jones, the dedicatee of The Less Deceived, that my um, co-executive uh, trustee, Anthony Thwaite, would do an edition of the poems and do a selected letters and I would write the, write the biography, which I began doing more or less immediately. Um, so although the book came out in 93, in fact, I think it took me something like seven years of, to, to write it all together. There was a lot of interviewing to, to be done and a lot of mulling over things to be, to be done. Um, it seemed to me then, and still does now, that I had a very serious responsibility to getting the facts as accurate as I could. I mean, later on, when the, the essential shape of somebody's life is known, biographers can be more um, adventurous in the way that they tell a story. But I think if you're writing uh, the first account of somebody's life and are able to speak to survivors in a way that people who come along later simply will not be able to do, um, then you must get the grid sorted out. And I, as I say, that, that seemed important. It's interesting that you choose such uh, disparate subjects for your biographies. We can take another one, the Lamberts, the famous Lamberts, of course, George, Constant and Kidd. Now, that came out in um, 1986, obviously before Philip Larkin, something completely different altogether. Yes, well, in a sense, we're taking this in, in the wrong order because it's unchronological, but I think it, it doesn't matter at all doing it this way around because I've always wanted and enjoyed writing about things other than the thing that I'm presumably best known for, uh, for doing or writing, in other words, poems. Um, like a, a lot of other writers that I know, and I'm sure like, like you, I spend a great deal of time looking at pictures and a great deal of time listening to music. And the idea which was actually given to me, it wasn't homegrown, this idea of writing about the, the Lambert family. 
appealed to me very much in those respects. George Lambert was as a painter barely known in, in the UK, but, um, but very well known in Australia, where he spent most of his life. His son, Constant, was, a found, was of course a composer, but also a founder of what we know, know as the Royal Ballet, um, and a great uh, friend of and lover, in many cases, of people who were crucially also involved in the, in the formation of it. And his son, Kit, um, was a rock and roller who founded track records and discovered the Who and was their manager. So here was a chance to write a book about virtually all the arts apart from, uh, from writing, though Constant did write quite an interesting uh, m musical book called Music Ho, um, but essentially to, a, a non-literary enterprise. Um, and also to tell a story about how, about how generations repeat themselves in spite of often their best efforts not to do that. All the Lamberts were very um, busily self-destructive people, um, and in fact, on the very first page of it, of that book, without knowing that I was later going to be writing Larkin's Life, I quoted that famous Larkin passage about how man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf, get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> um, and it was rather dismaying, I must say, to watch, as perhaps we watch ourselves, fighting against the things that we've spotted in our parents and sworn not to replicate, and then eventually caving in and, um, in spite of our best, best efforts, reproducing them in some way or another. Well, you were awarded the Somerset Maugham Award for that biography, which must have been very self-satisfying indeed. Um, returning to the poetry, of yes. course, as we should be talking about, really. Um, interestingly, in your earlier poems, you did not use any rhyme at all. That came later, and you liken your poetry, Andrew, to a glass of water, but when you go to drink it, it turns into gin. I like that. Well, it was really a point about... It's nice of you to, to say so. It was really a point about simplicity, this, that I want... I've always wanted to write poems which seem to be simple, um, but which nevertheless manage to register emotional complexity and intensity. I can't ever imagine myself wanting to write poems that don't want to move people. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons why, over the years, I mean, I'm now... 50, I've, uh, 51 even, God, um, I've come round to um, wanting to write more formally structured poems than I used to do. I mean, they were never all over the place. They were stanzaic and they had a sort of strong sense of rhythm and so on, but, um, but it was much more the rhythm of thought than the received rhythmical patterns that I, that I was interested in then. Now I'm much more interested in strong rhymes and, and strong rhythms because I've come to believe that these are effective ways of releasing feeling and not concealing it. Um, so that when I, nowadays, when I'm thinking of when a new subject for a poem presents itself to me by one re means or another, I do spend quite a lot of time thinking what would be the form to write it in that does best reveal that, uh, that, that particular subject. So if it's something which has a strong narrative element, then obviously you might be tempted toward a ballad form. If, if it's a little glimpse of something tender and intimate, but which nevertheless contains an element of argument, um, then a sonnet might be appropriate and so on, and so on, and so on. And looking down the track, I'm interested in at least experimenting with the idea that you might write a longish poem, not too long, but, but longish poem, which is made up of lots and lots of different forms, each of which has been chosen because it's somehow appropriate to the bit of the overall pitch that you're trying to, trying to present. For instance, um, I'm in the middle of being commissioned by Channel 5, the TV channel, to write a long poem about which they're going to make a film to mark the 60th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. 
Um, and I'm going to make a journey through France and through Germany and end up in Berlin and try and identify places uh, and to re retrieve memories on the way um, which will uh, tell this sort of encapsulated story of the, the lead up to the piece and then some other uh, poems, as it were, falling away from it about the consequences of the piece. And I am very tempted to do this in ways which allow a whole range of different forms to, to come together. Um, you, you have actually already written quite a lengthy piece of prose for The Guardian yes. because you went, you went with your father, who was a yeoman in yes. Normandy 60 years ago, to relive his memories, of which he'd been very reticent yes. about telling you and your brother before. Yes, that's right. I did um, earlier this summer go over to Normandy with my father, um, who was in the Essex Yeomanry, as you say, and, um, and landed uh, in Normandy on, 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 on D-Day. Um, and we had an intensely interesting time going round, um, and I must say intensely moving too. I was completely transfixed by, by, by it all, and felt very close to my dad in the, in the process. Um, and without wanting to go on about this for too long, I think that one of the things that a lot of people of my generation have felt is that their fathers and their mothers, where it applies, have been rather reticent about their experiences in the war for a variety of reasons. Um, but, and that was certainly a motive in going to try and sort of break down that wall of silence, which had been built for very good reasons by my father, reasons of modesty, discretion, uh, self-preservation, and I think preservation of me in some sense. Um, but there's something else that, that is, gets stirred into it as I begin to think about it now, which is that for somebody born in, um, in the years shortly after the war, as I was, um, Perhaps you feel this yourself, without asking you how old you are, but I mean, we probably are more or less of an age. It's very difficult for us now to look at our lives, at our first 50-odd years, and think we have been unusually lucky as Europeans during this time. It's, it's different for you coming from Ireland because you've had the troubles to, to contend with. But in, on the mainland of England, um, the last 50 years partly because of what my father, our fathers, and their generation did in the war, um, we have had probably a longer period of uninterrupted peace and of, of rising prosperity, um, social calm, all these things, than I can think of for many, many, many years before. So we, have, we are a blessed generation in this respect, and it's over now. When I look at my own children, um, who are in their mid and late teens, what I see are people who, poor them, are going to have to contend with a world that is full of a trouble, a new trouble, which is to do with international terrorism um, and a face-off between Western culture and certain aspects of Islamicist, not necessarily Islam, though there, there may be issues to negotiate about that, but certainly Islamicist um, terrorism. And their lives will not be as, uh, well, peaceful, as innocent as, as ours were able to be. Well, perhaps innocent isn't quite the right word, but I think you perhaps see what I'm, what I'm driving at. Yes, that. I certainly do. Now, the clock is going to beat us, and I feel we must move on a little here. Um, you seem such a modest man uh, to me, really, not seeking the limelight. So I wondered why you accepted the honour of Poet Laureate five years ago. Did you have to wrestle with it? For instance, um, it's almost as if suddenly from punk rocker you become uh, knighted. 
Well, uh, yes, I never was much of a punk rocker, it has to be said, um, and I'm certainly not knighted. Uh, well, there are two questions in that, I think. One is, um, I've always felt, I mean, whether I'm a m modest person or not, I don't know. I'm certainly pretty dynamically egomaniacal when it comes to finding time to write in, and I'm sure that a lot of my nearest and dearest would say that modesty is not one of my virtues. Um, but it's also true that I do, um, I'm not naturally easy in when a bright light is being shone on me. Um, and it's also, and this is in a sense more important, I think, true to say that the rise such writing as I can do does depend for its, um, its nature, let alone whatever quality it might have, on being slightly outside things, on being on the edge of things, on uh, overhearing, overseeing, rather than being, being in the middle of activities. Perhaps this is true for all, for all writers. So I am conscious of the dif difficulties and dangers of that, and I do whatever I can simply to preserve it, um, not to uh, cultivate a public version of myself which destroys what I rightly or wrongly reckon is the inner me, but at the same time evolving some kind of public manners as a form of self-protection, so that the, the kind of raw, vulnerable, um, new everyday feeling that a writer must have about themselves um, is, is protected. What is the remit, actually? Do you feel obliged to um, write in a different way now because of this honour. I mean, I, I suppose it must go without saying that you could never criticise or rubbish the royal family. Not that I suppose you would want to, but, but th th that is one area that you have to take on board. Uh, and you might feel, you know, that a little of your freedom in that respect had been curtailed. What exactly is the remit of a poet laureate? Well, the only thing that Tony Blair and the Queen said to me independently when I was appointed was, you don't have to do anything. But they did say it in a way that uh, allowed me to feel that if I didn't do anything, then I might be due for a time in the tower. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean that, but you know what I, you know what I do mean. Um, you're completely right. I think that um, to write poems that are somehow critical of the royal family would be a very strange thing for me to do. It's luckily something I have no wish to do. Um, so I don't feel constrained by that. Do I feel constrained to follow the line that government is taking about one thing or another? Absolutely not. Um, I think that poetry depends crucially for its integrity, um, its sincerity and its authenticity, everything for its nature. Um, as I've already said in a different context, on being at a slight angle to experience, and possibly even at being adversarial, at being kind of counter-suggestive and, and all those things. Um, and one of the ways in which I think this is manifesting itself in my own poems, if I may say this, is that there is an idea, of course, that public poetry will be rather kind of tub-thumping and have the volume turned up to maximum and, uh, and all that. Actually, one of the things that I'm interested in doing, perhaps partly because it's one of the things that I can do, perhaps the only thing I can do, is to write rather intimate poems about personal things and say, these are public too. Um, and instead of writing sort of generalised accounts of national events, to, uh, to offer my own experience of them, my own feelings about them, as a way of um, trying to establish that we are all, that we live in a nation of voices in which everybody else's voice is as interesting and valued as the next person's. I, that sounds rather feeble as I say it, but, but it is a way of writing democratic public poems. Andrew, will you ever run out of inspiration and the desire to write poetry? I doubt it. I sincerely hope not, because I don't know what I would do 
about my sense of myself if I did stop writing poems. I've certainly been through times of my life when, without necessarily realising it, I haven't written as well as I have at other times of my life. And I think that's pretty normal in writers. I mean, it is a bit of a sort of uh, wave and trough activity. Um, but that's all right, because when I'm dead, then everybody can throw away the bad bits and choose the better bits. Um, if poems were to go away, and they might, um, then I comfort myself by thinking that I am able to and enjoy writing prose. And as you were saying earlier, I've written a good deal of it, of biographies and so on. At the moment, I'm writing a prose account of my early childhood up to the time of my mother's accident. And I'm absolutely loving doing it. Um, but, and but, it is stopping me writing poems while I'm writing it. I can feel them sort of circling somewhere, and no doubt when I've finished it, they'll, they'll decide that they want to land. But um, I think what I'm saying as I say this is, if ever poems do go away, there is something else which evidently I find pretty seriously interesting um, and have some ability for. So I, the question for me is not ever, will I stop writing poems, to which the answer would be, I might, that's out of my control. Will I stop writing, period? No. I think you're the first writer, both of prose and poetry, that I've ever interviewed who finds the blank page really exciting, that doesn't want to dust the bookshelves and water the pot plants and so on, rather than actually get down to work. Andrew Motion, Poet Laureate, has been a very great privilege to have you on the Geraldine Jameson interview this week. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure and privilege to talk to you too. Thank you.